three days to create it and then three days to run it for the public. And what could go wrong? And actually nothing. It was really great. What? Um, but that really hit home for me. It was kind of a culmination of a bunch of different strands in my work where I saw the power of game design as a tool for helping people listen better to each other, problem solve, all of these things that we want to teach young people um, in a way that's really accessible and fun. Welcome to episode 12 of Startup West, the podcast about building great startups in sunny Western Australia. I'm Beth Cornelia. And I'm Charlie Gunningham. And today we're talking with Dr. Kate Raines-Goldie. Originally from Canada, Kate arrived in Perth 12 years ago and has been very busy. She's completed her PhD, spoken at TEDx, set up a game conference, Play Up Perth. She writes for various media outlets, runs her own consultancy and has her own podcast. So in the midst of all that, we managed to sit down with Kate uh, this week and hear about her new focus on playfulness and gamifications. But before we start, we would like to, as always, thank our sponsors. So Alika for assistance with this podcast. Thanks, Alika. Anytime. Uh, which is also brought to you by Startup News and its sponsors, Raise, Tech on Technologies and BDO. Okay, let's get on with the show and our chat with Kate. Kate, welcome to Startup West. Thank you. So glad to have you here. Can you please start off by telling our <laughs> listeners a little bit of your background? Because you obviously are not natively from Perth. No, so I'm originally from Toronto. My parents, Toronto, Canada. I think. I know where Toronto is. You used to have to say that, but I think people know where Toronto is now, which yes. is like Torontonians are very happy about this. You don't need to qualify it with being in Canada. Got it. <laughs> um, I think that's thanks to probably Drake. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, and my parents are from New Zealand, but we all have oh. Canadian accents, even though we're dual citizens. Fantastic. So I've been here for about 12 years now. Uh, I came to do my PhD at Curtin, which has the only internet studies program, like a full internet studies program in the entire world. There's right. like bits and pieces you can do an undergraduate or a PhD, but the full so program is here. What were you doing in Toronto to suddenly say, I want to do a PhD in internet studies on the other side of the world? Oh, that is a very good question. It's a good story too. Go on. <laughs> Tell us. So um, when I was in my third year of my undergrad at the University of Toronto, I, some for some reason, decided that I wanted to publish a paper and speak at an academic conference, even though I didn't realize that this wasn't a thing that you normally do when you're an right. undergrad. And I discovered that because uh, I was really interested in this new thing called the internet, which is what, 2002. Um, and I found out that there was an internet studies conference happening in Toronto, and I decided that that was where I was going to present. And so I noticed the deadline for the paper abstract had passed. Mm. So I, of course, decided I was just going to email the organizer and say, hey, can anyway. I have an extension? Right. And he said, yes, and you seem quite interesting. Let's have a conversation. And he ended up being my PhD supervisor. So you could publish a paper at the conference or present a paper without being a PhD, without being yes. a lecturer. Yeah, you don't. Or that, a professor. No, I didn't even have an undergrad degree. So when you get these emails, call for papers. You can just <laughs> whack in a paper. Anybody, anybody can. Ah, I yeah. thought it was just for uni bonds. That's good to know. Yeah, I, go. yeah, I'm not sure why you would want to. I'm not sure why I did. True. But I'm here now having this conversation. So, you know, who knows what Look can where happen. Look where it brought you. Yeah, of just having a beginner's mind. So then you thought, I really need to go and do a PhD. I like this stuff. Yeah. Researching, presenting papers. Yeah. Let's find me an internet <laughs> studies course somewhere in the world. Well, it was my, my PhD supervisor he was... spun the globe. Yeah, he said, hey... No, well, he and said, Perth. come to Australia, because he was the wow. one in charge of the Internet Studies program here. Mm-hmm. Ah. So it wasn't random. He was kind of um, 
Yeah, he was in charge of the Internet Research Program, Internet Studies Program at Curtin. He's now, of course, moved to Melbourne, which is, you know, oh. we have that brain drain problem. But um, he set it up and was my PhD supervisor, same as Matthew Allen. He's back then, really he cool did 2002. I mean, the internet had been around for a while. Was but it, it wasn't like the thing that it is now. Internet 2.0, they were calling it. Yeah, Almost like 2.0. the pre-web 2.0, the, yeah. the precursor to what we now call social media. Yeah, This yeah, sort of exactly. two-way web, right? Rather yeah. than just broadcast a website. And yeah. Get- Although that's a misnomer because I think the internet's always been social. Like that idea of web 2.0 kind of implicitly mm. creates web 1.0, which implies that the internet wasn't interactive before. Yes. But it was. And <laughs> yeah. its original creator, Tim Berners-Lee, said it's exactly what it was supposed to be. Yeah. Which was interactive and yeah. rewriting and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. All right. So you landed up in Little What was that like? <laughs> Coming to Perth? Oh, my goodness. From Toronto. Now it was a bit different. Perth was a bit different back yeah. then. So this is 2008 that I came to. Okay. No, 2007. Yeah, 2007. And, Mining um, boom. Oh, we were yeah, like so it was interesting time. Walking along then. Yeah, it was a very interesting time. And I, um, so I was at Curtin and I lived on Curtin campus. And so my PhD was on Facebook. And for some reason at the time, Curtin had decided that they were going to block traffic to social media because it was Excellent. a time waster. So I couldn't actually look at Facebook. <laughs> on and campus. I, and you lived on and campus. I, and so the internet in my room oh. was the same internet as the rest of the campus. Oh, the irony. I love so, it. That's <laughs> I know. Like, I came all the way to Australia to study the internet. And you were blocked even, from yeah. Facebook just even, like you'd yeah. been in China or somewhere. Yeah. Even more ironic, the Facebook was created for colleges, for, for yeah. on-campus use. Initial, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, initially. So, that's, yeah. so times have really changed yeah. since then. But what were you looking at? You, did, you do a PhD on Facebook. Mm. I mean, what, what were you studying? That you, well, initially it was a very broad... So it was an ethnographic study of Facebook. So you kind of follow... The data. So it was originally what was then being called the social web. So it was, yes. I was interested in how people, and that web 2.0 idea of APIs and things being connected and sharing data and. and the social graph is, yeah, is a good way to call that, right? Yeah. yeah so okay. I was really interested in how mm. people use those sites together as part of their community. And what I noticed was that people were really interested in Facebook. And so people weren't really talking about. Twitter or Flickr and mm. any other sites as much as they were talking about Facebook. And so this was when people in Perth were still using MySpace, <laughs> but people in Toronto um, who I was still talking to, they had the second biggest geographical network was Toronto. And that was back when they had those networks. Right. So the first was London. So I realized that following, you know, what people were talking about, what the interest was that actually this wasn't the PhD wasn't about the social web. It was about Facebook. And then that emerged. So what, what is it about Facebook that is really the yeah. important thing and that actually turned into privacy? So it's about privacy and Facebook, which has mm. now become yeah, a, massive a massive issue. issue a massive issue, right. Were so, you studying these sort of issues back then? Yes. You were sort of foreseeing what might yes. happen with the US election in 2016? Not, and no, not and specifically that, but it was the, how the philosophy behind Facebook um, was very much about pushing privacy norms. So if you remember... Mm back in 2007, 2006, MySpace was all about not your real name. Like you were not, you didn't use your, you would use a handle, you'd use an avatar. And so Facebook really saw this as a problem around wanting to get people, they called it privacy hurdles, to get people to be their real quote unquote selves on the internet. So it ended up being this study of how Facebook systematically pushed um, privacy. So what I would call the distinction of social versus institutional privacy. So up to that point, we'd been very, well, still concerned about how companies and institutions are using our information, but not so much um, how 
we're sharing information with each other and disclosures around right. how we manage our identity and how other people are viewing us and like all of these things that are now just we don't even think about anymore. Mm-hmm. And so making that distinction, but then looking at how people were really concerned with their identity and social privacy, but not thinking about how Facebook was using their information yes, and how they were kind of being pushed and nudged. And, and they were happily posting exactly yeah. where they were, what they were doing, yeah. who they were with, yeah. and it was permanent. Yeah. 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 And so, here we are 10 years later. <laughs> Oh my and this is a major issue. Yeah, so it came out. Into, I finished in 2012, and I yeah. published it. And was like, "Hey, this is a thing we should be concerned about." And it was like crickets. <laughs> like it fell on the floor. Yeah, but right. then when this whole Cambridge Analytica thing happened, that's mm. kind of where it. I suddenly became this go-to person. Because the BBC calling me saying, "Hey, wow. can you talk to us about what's happening?" Wow. So wow. that yeah, that was interesting to have it kind of come back. It was like mm. too soon. But yes. then was an interesting place to be in when... What were you doing for those four years before that? I was working for a what I would describe as a non-profit startup in Toronto uh, where I had my first burnout ever, uh, like real, real burnout. And I was like, I'm going to go do a PhD now. <laughs> nice. As you do. Because on your resume, I think, you, 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 on your website, it, it's uh, I built my first game when I was 14 mm. with my best friend and we're still friends. Yeah. So <laughs> you built a game... Yourself, you coded a game, yes. or yeah, yes, in a in a programming language called Turing, which was right. based out of or created at the University of Toronto. Right, I don't know if it's still supported or if it still exists. Um, but when I was going through school, being a game designer or a game developer wasn't a thing, no. and so no one. I was actually actively discouraged to not waste my time with this game stuff. Yes. So it was something I had to kind of rediscover. Despite as the I, fact that the games <laughs> industry is worth 140 billion US dollars. <laughs> yeah. So Again, too soon, right? Bigger than the film <laughs> you, and the music were, industry you were combined. Just a little too early, but can yeah. you tell us how you've gone from developing your first game yeah. when you were fourteen to to your involvement and in your interaction with the games industry or, and the gaming industry as they now not currently the gaming is. industry, <laughs> not the gaming industry. Sorry, <laughs> and can you talk us through this difference in those sure. two things? So, for the uninitiated, yeah, what are the differences? So between differences? Th- that's a really important. It's a small semantic thing, but. Um, yes. Games industry is, we, we sometimes confuse those terms, but gaming is kind of a polite way of talking about the gambling industry. Right. And so not always, there. it always means that, but often it can lead to some interesting situations yes. if you're not super clear. And gambling who you're problems to. and all sorts. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. So games industry. Um, and I, so I've always really been interested in games and played games, but it was never kind of, I never saw it as a viable career option because that just wasn't really a thing. Um, And of course, when you do a PhD, you kind of, in the first year or two, have some time to do other things and procrastinate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I um, had a friend who went to work at Microsoft Research as an intern. And he, what they do when they're interns is they play a game called The Intern Game, which is a what would be called, I guess, an alternate reality game, which is kind of like maybe pervasive games or mixed reality games where the world becomes the game board and hmm. the um, distinction between what's real and what's fake, which is kind of a theme we're dealing with now these days in other areas. Um, yeah. It's it's unclear. And so they were kind of released into the streets of Seattle and they played these games and had this amazing adventure experience. And so he decided he wanted to do something similar for fun. Um, and I helped him to do that and just got really hooked on this idea of physical world games. So um, 
started doing that as kind of a hobby during my PhD and people started saying, Hey, these things you're making are really interesting. We want to, we want to hire you to work on some projects. So it kind of naturally evolved. Um, and then because I was in Perth, there was kind of a global movement of people creating these physical world games, but we didn't really have people doing it in Perth. And so you'd have what would be called like sandbox events or sandpit events where people would come bring physical world games called pervasive games to that were in development to be tested by other people. And so I thought, well, I'm going to start that here in Perth, which is play at Perth. Right. And was hoping to get more people working in that space, kind of encourage that. And again, I kind of just go with what people, what the community needs and what people want. And so I started having board game developers and game, like video game developers come and say, we want to bring our games. And I thought, well, let's just do that. And let's just make it open up to any kind of game. So there is a games industry here. There are people yes, building sure. games yes. in Perth. Yes. How big, how successful are we at it compared to other centers? Or are we a tiny little micro dot on a micro dot? So... Victoria has 50% of Australian games come right. out of there. And wow. the last, I think this is maybe 2015, 2016, I think the data is from, we have about 7% of Australia's right. games. Underrepresented. Is, yeah. I mean, considering that there's been very little support of the industry mm. historically, it's pretty good. So what's yeah. Melbourne doing that, that no one else seems to be They doing? have state-level funding. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they've had... A very long period of um, screen or film Victoria supporting what they're what they're doing. So being the same as the model in Canada, where you have um, the Canadian New Media Fund doesn't just support film and television, but kind of anything that's on the screen. Yep, yep. Whereas for some reason, federally, there's 2014. There was a a kind of Screen Australia's um, games funding program. So I was kind of the only thing that was accessible to WA game makers was mm. the federal fund. And so when that got shut down, there was nothing. So now, um, as a result of my work and a bunch of other people in the games industry um, here in WA, the the government has now launched a pilot to look into supporting the games industry. Federal government? Uh, State government. State government in WA? Yeah. Okay. So That's a movement. Yeah. So it's it's a $50,000 program right now that's a pilot, and that's largely around travel funding, but there isn't any development funding, which is what... Victoria has where they put a lot of money into actually almost like seed funding for games. Yeah. So we don't, we don't have that yet. So how hard is it to dev a new game from scratch? You know, what can you can you quantify that for us at all? What, what like a we, video game? Yeah. Or, or any kind of game? Any kind of game. <laughs> yeah, like, I know that's a broad question, <laughs> yeah. but. Yeah. I guess the, the, the answer is one of those annoying answers, which is how long is a piece of string? Mm-hmm. So is it. Probably more than 50,000 though. Yes. yes. <laughs> I would guess. Yeah. So a lot of people bootstrap. So yeah. um, Jacob Janorka, who left us for Melbourne, mm-hmm. unfortunately, he basically bootstrapped his own game, got it to the point where he could put it on Kickstarter, and then did really well in the marketing, got it on PewDiePie, which is like the Oprah's wow. book club of yeah. video games. Um, and yeah, I was, was able to do it that way. Hmm. So... And that's successful. It's been yeah, successful. He's been doing yeah. pretty well. And he's doing. He's because I haven't heard of many, but around the sort of startup scene, you know, tech startups and accelerators and stuff. You know, I've heard of Offbeat Games, and they had a medieval game, which was like a VR game, yeah. which gave me a headache because you were <laughs> yeah, like VR charging stuff. around on a horse with a big. <laughs> Bayonet probably, thing, probably a lance, you right? Want to throw up? As well. Yeah, I got, I they got shut down. Yeah, 
I've heard of wager games. Yeah. I've heard a few. I'm going to see them actually next week. There's, there's a few, but they're very few and far between. Would, that, would I be right? Or is it a bit of an undercover scene that I just haven't discovered yet or we haven't discovered yet? Mm, there are a few. There. So there's um, Stirfire Studios. There's, um, I mean, I haven't been working in the space right. for maybe about a year and a half. Mm. So not super up to date on what's happening. Yeah. Um, but I can say from play at Perth, the last one that we ran, there was a lot of really new people with like, I actually didn't know most of the people there. Um, and I've been running that for about, we had our fifth anniversary, which we didn't celebrate. (laughs) birthday. Um, been too busy, but, um, yeah, I I didn't know a lot of the people there and that was actually kind of exciting to me because it's new projects, new people. mm, Yeah. I mean, flippant, a comment I made a few minutes ago, but I mean, it's a huge industry. It's bigger mm-hmm. than the music and film industry combined. Um, are we, lo- as a country, are we losing out on this big party that could be the games industry? Yeah. We've got the talent, right? Yeah. We've got programmers well, and creative missing people. Out. Yeah. At a national But Australia's level. missing out yeah. as well. Yeah, because it's it doesn't require, we don't need to dig giant holes in the ground that right. cost millions of dollars. We just need to have fast internet and we kind of, are we getting to that point we kind where, of have fast internet? Where's the center of the games industry globally? Is it is it America? Um, America, Japan, right. Asia is pretty big. Yeah, yeah. Stuff happening in Europe as well. So you were saying that you're not really in the games industry so much anymore, but what, what I suppose, learnings have you taken from that to apply to what you're currently doing? Can you talk us through what you're, what you're currently up to? Mm, so, I'm, I mean, I guess I've always kind of been adjacent to the games industry. So yeah. um, because of my work with Play at Perth to try and get more kind of innovative, so describe what Play at Perth is as a, a night for work in development for games and creative innovation. And so my work with that, because it's really was really industry and community focused, um, got me on the radar of the Film and Television Institute, which has now been defunded. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, but they brought me in to, to build their games program and support the games industry. So I've always kind of been working in and around games. I've not been a video game developer. My mm-hmm. work has been, I'm interested in kind of games and playfulness. Mm-hmm. And so the yep. games I make are using the physical world as a way of as a, as a platform for video games that may or for games that use technology or maybe not technology but it's the playfulness that I'm really interested in right so how I guess we would call it gamification how gamification can be used to um, started out with being interested in kind of community building and public space and education and mm. now started to see through my work doing that running workshops and running games for people, seeing transferable skills around the skills that we now need for the future. So things around people saying this, you know, working on a game with other people has helped me to be better at listening or problem solving or team building or or, yeah, fostering innovations, all of these things that are, um, things we need for the future and it's it's actually game design that is really good at this we often think we're going to make a game to do something but it's Mm -hmm. almost like if you think about the game of making a game right so i just worked on a project in july for the city of sterling which is a six-day project and it was kind of a hackathon style three days we had uh, 20 teenagers it was a school holidays program we're going to create an escape room so basically like a physical world game, you get locked in a room, you have to solve a series of puzzles to get out. Mm-hmm. And we created it in a library, so we had three days to create it, and then three days to run it for the public. And what wow. could go wrong? And actually nothing. It was really <laughs> great. What? Um, but yeah. that really hit home for me. It was kind of a culmination of a bunch of different strands in my work where I saw 
the power of game design as a tool for helping people listen better to each other, right. problem solve, all of these things that we want to teach young people um, in a way that's really accessible and fun. It's like a natural yeah. People get games, people get playfulness, and so you can do really heavy learning right. without it feeling really, really heavy. So, so what can startups learn from this? What I think that got? it's it's very similar to that kind of lean methodology, right? Um, because it's all about like the game design process is very similar when done well, which is all about getting, and that's what Play at Perth is about: is getting. You don't want to finish your game. It's the idea of like the right. minimum viable game. Of minimum viable product, and you yep. want to do that fast fail thing. You want to, you don't want to spend a year creating a game, and then you launch it to the public, and no one cares. Right? <laughs> you didn't validate it. So, yeah, didn't, exactly. Didn't do any of that stuff. So it's um, that similar kind of process. But I think that it, what I really like about playfulness is that if you can do that kind of lean methodology with more of a, I think it helps to be serious but not attached. Mm-hmm. to things and so I think it also allows you to be f- more fearless and more bold and to take risks in a way that you can feel um, it's like, it's almost like a way of making it more safe right. to do it so it's kind of like because you're doing more- it in a game environment and your startup itself is not at risk is that what you mean? So you well, can go into a game environment it's almost like a psychology thing Yeah. so it's it's by making that process more fun yeah. I think that it enables people to be more bold so for example a game that I play with myself is where if I'm presented on an, in a day with something that I'm scared to do as long as I'm not actually going to be in, in physical danger, danger then yeah. I, I have a deal with myself that I, I will actually do it and so I'll do things that I wouldn't normally do and even if I fail at the thing the fact that I've forced myself and pushed myself to do that thing actually makes me feel great because I've done I've still won at my game so it's like I can force myself because I'm actually kind of socially awkward (laughs) sometimes with people I don't know to um to talk so I had a game I had a version of the game where I had to talk to five strangers and have non-transactional meaningful deep conversations with people um complete strangers and hmm. I wouldn't that have done That was your it. challenge to do that yeah. in a day. Yeah. And so I wouldn't have done that normally without it being a game. Right. And the fact that I made it a game made it easier for me to do that. Right. And it made it safer and it was and so I think that there's this kind of mentality, this mind shift to it's like playfulness as a mindset. So if you kind of kind yes. of add that as a layer to your business, it allows you to be mm almost like you can still and it's like how we play games is you're serious about the game you want to win but if you don't win it's not the end of the world so it's like this like serious non-attachment how to go at playing the yeah. game yeah so it's kind of I think there are things you wouldn't otherwise have done yeah. so what you you rang up five people you walked no. up in the street <laughs> what, what did you do I went so I went to Fremantle and I <laughs> great just, place to do that yes I feel like that was probably a little bit easier um, and I just so I think one of them was I went to a bookstore and I went to the philosophy section and just yeah. stood there and guy came in and I said are you a philosopher <laughs> just like totally ridiculous out of nowhere yeah and he said looking at the philosophy books I said are you a philosopher and we had a normal conversation and it was like people actually I think want 
to have conversations. Mm. And that was kind of what I realized is that I thought people were going to be weirded out and not want to talk to me, but actually I had five really great conversations. And mm. the last conversation I had was ended up being my first podcast guest on my new podcast, Fearlessly Playful. Yeah. <laughs> a little plug there. Link the will be in the, yes, link will be in the show notes. <laughs> um, but he, he was this very interesting man who was dressed up in this kind of cat suit and had flowers in his hair and was dancing around the streets of Fremantle okay. um, from the UK and was here for like a few days and his, his, his alter ego was the disco bunny. And so I ended up having this conversation with him and um, ended up being on my podcast and I felt like I won my game because I yes. got my first What a result. Yeah. You would have even met him otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. So if you hadn't just chosen to go to Fremantle yeah. that day. Yeah. Instead of talking to five yeah. random strangers. Wow. Yeah. So there are really serious cultural ap- applications yes. yeah. of this mindset that you can apply. Yeah, I think that for success, can, it's a way yeah. of like kind of gamifying success. And yeah. yeah. So here we are at the beginning of 2019. What are your sort of goals for the year? What are you going to be getting up to in 2019? Ooh, You've obviously question. launched a new podcast, which yeah, we so gave just, a shout out yes, to in the last a new episode. Podcast. I'm really focused and interested in playfulness. Yes. So um, I guess that one of the strands that runs through my work is seeing in things before they happen or kind of being able to spot stuff. So I wrote, so like the privacy yeah. issues you foresaw yeah. with yeah. Facebook, you're obviously adept at this. Yes. And, um, so I actually wrote the first, I believe to be, I'm like 99% sure the first paper on internet memes in 2003 wow. and also about internet friendings, so that idea of friendship and friending mm. before it was a verb. And I think it was 2005. So, for me now, what's on my radar is this idea of um, kind of the return to the human. The future will be human and the future will be playful. Mm-hmm. And so playfulness as not just like video games, but actually like these kind of games where there is no technology. It's all about I'm going to go talk to five people or I'm going right. to do something that scares me for my personal development. So mm-hmm. I'm really interested in the power of play. Mm-hmm. and The serious power of play. Yeah. like Yeah. yeah the serious yeah. power of play. Yeah. And... Um, I wrote an article for the business news for the end of the year about how there's a bit of a return to the analog. So not Mm. obviously we're not going back to the analog, but kind of swinging back. So the rise of um, ebook sales, ebook sales are decreasing Mm. and actual paper books are increasing. People are buying vinyl Vinyl again. I taught at at Mm -hmm. university last year and was surprised that, all of my 20-something students were buying Michael Jackson. My 17-year-old daughter is absolutely vinyl, vinyl, vinyl. Yep. Yep. So, um, people are actually having real conversations face to face. I know. Yeah. Look at us, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and podcasts and are a pod- huge thing. Yeah. So it's I'm really yeah. interested in that kind of um, almost like return. It's like we've gone really mm. far in this direction towards technology and the digital, and we're kind of return and being very serious. I reckon that's the title of your book coming up, isn't it? Which one? Your future one you haven't written yet. Oh, what's the title? It's going to be The Return to Human or whatever it is, Your Return to Analog or something like that. Mm. It was somewhere in mm. there. Mm. All right. We'll keep brainstorming for stay you. Stay tuned, stay tuned. <laughs> okay, we're going to finish uh, with some rapid-fire questions. Uh, okay. um, fire away, Beth. All right, the single most important factor that makes a successful startup. Mm, fearlessness. Ah. There you go. Perfect, perfect. Another little plug to your podcast. Love it. Do you believe in insourcing or outsourcing your tech? Oh, tell me more what you mean by that. Do you have to develop all the tech yourself with your own team or can you go and get it outsourced somewhere else? Oh, outsourcing for sure. Outsourcing, you're a real fan of that. Yeah. Okay. Should a startup self-fund or raise money? 
I think it depends on the situation, what you want to do. Mm. A lot of people say, you know, try and self-fund as far as you can until Mm. you have to take money Mm -hmm. and then take money if you've got, you know, a situation to do that, which then becomes quite a responsibility because now you've got shareholders, Mm. right? Well, yes, it's right. There's benefits to both. Whereas some people go, we'll just have to raise money. I'd say, well, there's no way I'm raising money. Um, Are you a PC or a Mac person? Mac. Yeah, I'd have thought so. (laughs) Although I was a PC person for quite a, a few years. So, okay. Used to be in, I think Windows XP was when I stopped using. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a dog, <laughs> an absolute dog. <laughs> so, what podcast other than this one and your own one do you listen to? Oh, um, how many? Or which, like, can which, I mention, yeah, a mention them? Oh, yeah, name a few that you really um, like. Uh, Without Fail is one I've been listening to, okay. which is um, one of the Gimlet Media podcasts. Mm-hmm. And it's basically people who've done really interesting things uh, so that the guy who did the Apple store, but uh, there is a big failure as well. So like looking at the success and the failure, I don't think we talk yeah. enough about failure. And, and I, that's what, again, games are great for is that idea of it's not failure, it's learning. Because if you think about any game. You dial many times. Yeah, you, like <laughs> level one, you die until you get to level two and it's yeah. not failure, it's just getting to the next level. So yeah. the value of that and, the, and not being scared of it. Mm. Um, and another one is 99% Invisible. Oh, I love that love, one. One of my favorites. Rowan Mars yeah. is, yeah. Rowan Mars is great. Yeah. Oakland, California. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful Oakland, California. Well, thanks, Kate. We want to wish you all the best of what you're doing. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation. And thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe to us and leave a nice review, as that always helps other people find us. We would also like to give a shout-out uh, to another West Australian podcast. This week, it's the Perth Symphony Orchestra, which has been going for seven years now, and it has its own podcast with the wonderful Bobby Webster. So do check that out, Startup People, for something a little bit different. And I read an article that people are turning to classical music now. Younger and younger people and the hipsters out there are into classical music. So check out the PSO. You and I both know Bobby very well. We do, we do. She's fantastic. How how hard is it to create your own orchestra? She's gone and done it. Absolutely. I think we should have her on the show next. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) And we'd like to thank our sponsors, Startup West, of course, produced this. Uh, by Startup News and Alika. Thanks, Alika, for everything you do. And uh, thanks to our new sponsor for 2019, Rays, Tech On Technology and BDO. See you next time. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Thanks. Kate.